Why am I here? Why are you here? How did life begin? Am I the product of random chance or an extraterrestrial alien visit to our planet to seed life or the product of intelligent design? Is my faith compatible with science or do the two remain in a constant state of contradiction? And what about Darwin and evolution and the origin of species? What do I do with all of the conflicting things that I read and hear in our world today? The first five words of our English Bible launch us on a spiritual exploration of our roots. Genesis begins with these words. In the beginning, God created. Five words into the biblical narrative, and I'm faced with a question that demands an answer. My answer will impact how I read all the rest of the Bible. It will impact the way I think and reason and behave in my daily life. It will influence my attitude toward the past, to the people and events of my present, and how, if all, I prepare for the future. It is one of the most fundamental and profound questions I'll ever have to answer, and you as well. The question is simply this. Do I believe the first five words of Scripture? There is no in-between on this question. Either I believe it or I don't. I can't have it both ways. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure yet. I'm still exploring. I'm still trying to find an answer. That's okay. I get that. I understand that. Just keep exploring till you get the answer. Do not live your life in a limbo on this issue as if it doesn't matter. Too much is at stake with your answer. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They Use no words, no sound is heard from them, and yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The words of Scripture are undeniable in their meaning. God is the creator of everything. But what do we do with the science and the philosophy that says otherwise? Charles Darwin's wife was a committed believer, and it appears in his own personal life that he struggled with his views out of respect for his wife until in 1851 their 10-year-old daughter Annie died. and The impact of her death, the sorrow that he experienced, changed him. 
1859, he went ahead and published his book on the origin of species. Darwin didn't consider himself an atheist, but rather an agnostic. And yet, the theory he espoused has become the sole answer for those who do not believe. I, I do not mean to suggest this morning that if you believe in certain tenets of evolution that you cannot believe in God. But for the atheist, evolution is defended with religious fervor because it is the only alternative explanation of how we exist apart from God. Now, why spend time on this issue? Well, if there is no creator to whom we must be accountable, then there are no rules, and a person can do as he or she desires. You see, without the existence of a supreme being, there's no moral code. There's no moral absolutes. And if there are no moral absolutes, then there is no such thing as sin. And if there is no such thing as sin, there's no need for or the existence of a Savior. But if there's no sin, if there are no rules, no absolutes, no morality, then how do we explain the existence of guilt or remorse? i got to admit, the idea of no sin sounds pretty good, but there are consequences to that one. In his Fast Facts on False Teaching, Dr. Ron Carlson quotes a science teacher saying this, quote, I know evolution is scientifically impossible, but I'm still going to teach it because it is morally comfortable. As long as I believe I am nothing but an animal, I can live any way I choose. But as soon as I admit there's a creator, then I become morally responsible to that creator. And frankly, I don't want to be morally responsible to anyone, end quote. You see, this whole issue of morality is very much at stake in this dilemma. Without God, everything is up for grabs. Adolf Hitler used survival of the fittest to justify the destruction of over 12 million people in World War II. You see, if we eliminate a creator, then we have nothing left. This is what we have left. If we take God out of the picture, if there is no intelligent designer, then we are nothing more than the arbitrary product of random chance. We are reduced to a collection of atomic particles that exists on a small planet in a vast solar system through which we are rapidly moving with no control, no direction, no purpose, and no destiny. We came from nothing, we are headed nowhere, and we will be nothing when we become food for worms six feet under the ground. Now, if you've been struggling with your own self-esteem, I'd forget what I just read because that won't help you at all feel better about who you are. As with any theory, there are problems, holes, and unanswered, and in some cases, unanswerable questions. Such was the case with philosopher Anthony Flew, who for more than half a century was the most noted atheist in the world. And then in, in the year 2004, six years before he died in 2010, Anthony Flew shocked the scientific world as well as the philosophical world by saying that the evidence had led him to change his mind. He believed there was a God who created this place. Anthony Flew always said he was prepared to go wherever the evidence led him. And one of the things that really influenced him was an experiment conducted by the British National Council of Arts. And the test was based on the old question, how long would it take for an infinite number of monkeys pounding on an infinite number of typewriters to compose a sonnet by Shakespeare? And so a computer was placed in a cage with six monkeys, and after one month of hammering away at the keyboard, the monkeys produced 
50 typed pages, but not one single word. Now, this is amazing considering that the shortest word in the English language is a one-letter word, such as the article A or the pronoun I. But a one-letter word is only a word if there's a space on either side of it. Flew determined that with 30 keys on a keyboard, the possibility of getting a one-letter word is one in 27,000. And if these attempts could not even produce a one-letter word, what then are the possibilities of even getting one sentence of a Shakespearean sonnet, let alone the whole sonnet? And a Shakespearean sonnet, beautiful as it may be, cannot compare to the complexity of the universe. And he said the evidence led him to believe. Let me tell you what I believe, and then let me give you some thoughts to chew on this morning. I believe that we are the product of God's divine design. The older I grow, the more I see, the more I read, the more I study, the more we learn as a culture and educated people, the more I am convinced that He is a creating God. I will also tell you this, I have absolutely no struggle with the six literal 24-hour periods of day with regard to the story of creation. If God is God, folks, he could have done it in six literal days. Hey, if God is God, he could have done it in six minutes, he could have done it in six seconds, or he could have taken six eons of time to do it. I don't know how God did it, but I believe what the Bible tells me is true. I would be glad to share the reasons I believe that at some later time. He could have done it in a whole lot of ways, but since none of us were there to see it, experience it, or capture it with our iPhones, we can only surmise how God did it. Now, I think there's a lot of evidences to believe in a literal six-day creation. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that the earth is not as old as we think it is, but that's for another day. Because the heartbeat of what I want you to deal with this morning is this question. Is it true? In the beginning, God created. I want you to know what you believe. And I want you to know why you believe it. That's why we're beginning today this project called the Truth Project. This grand opportunity for you to be challenged in your thinking. It's a thought-provoking material, but material every Christian needs to grapple with. The first four lessons will take a lot of concentration. It'll take a lot of focus. You may have to rethink some of the things in it because it's a little tough. But once you get past the first four, they form the foundation for the rest of the series. It'll be well worth your time. I want you to do this. Will you agree with everything that you see and hear? Probably not. I seldom agree with everything that I read or hear. As I've told you before, I don't even agree with myself sometimes. So I'm sure not going to agree with everything that I read and see, but... I love it when my thinking and mind is challenged to say, okay, why don't I see it that way? Or what's the value? Or this is why I see it and why I believe this so strongly. You need to know why you believe what you believe. So let me give you some things this morning that just cause me pause when I think of a world without a creator. Here's one of them. Missing transitional forms in the fossil record. It's been 150 years since Darwin published his theory, and no transitional fossil record has been discovered. Species change and adapt, that we know for sure, but we have no transitional evidence between species. The evidence points in the other direction, actually. 
there was very little fossil activity in the pre-Cambrian days, and then suddenly the Cambrian period comes, and boom, all of the fossil records are there. All the living creatures that we have today, and some that are extinct, they're all represented there. It was like there was nothing, 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 and then explosion of life. So in, in actuality, the fossil record points to some point in time of design and creation more than this transitional, gradual development. Or here's another one, the finely tuned universe. Physicist Dr. Robert, uh, Robin Collins poses this question, what if, what if we landed astronauts on Mars and, and they discovered there a biosphere? You know, they'd never seen it on anything else, but all of a sudden, they, here's a biosphere. So they go in, into the biosphere and they go to the control panel. And the control panel is full of dials that are all dialed in just perfectly to sustain life. Um, the, the oxygen mix is just right. The temperature is 70 degrees. Humidity is, is, is at 50%. There is a system for replenishing air, for producing food, for generating energy, and disposing of waste. All of that is intact. If you were one of those astronauts, you'd have to conclude, wow, somebody, something's been here before, designed this perfectly for life, and set the dials just right. He goes on to say that in the last 30, 40 years, scientists have discovered that just about everything about the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. The dials that have a large range of motion have been set far too precisely to have been a random accident. The precise process by which carbon and oxygen are produced in stars makes life possible. Just a 1% change in the nuclear force would have as much as a 1,000-fold impact upon the production of oxygen, making life as we know it impossible. If the universe operates with such strict laws, is it inconceivable to believe, isn't it inconceivable to believe that there was a lawgiver who set those standards in motion at the beginning? The heavens declare the heavens declare the glory of God. This is one of my favorites, uh, and that is the principle of irreducible complexity. Dr. Michael Behe has written extensively on this subject, which states that a system or a device is irreducibly complex if it has a number of different components that all work together, must all work together to make the task happen. And if you remove one of those, then it can no longer operate. And he uses a mousetrap as an example. You know, a mousetrap has five basic parts. It has a wooden base, has a very tight spring, it has the bale that captures the, the mouse, it has the trigger point where you put the cheese, and it has that bar that holds the bale down as it connects with the trigger. Now, that's as basic as you can make a mousetrap. You can add a lot of things to it. You can paint the wood, you can put pictures on it, you can put fake cheese in the, in the trap part. You can, do all, you can make it a decorative wire spring. But if you reduce it down to its basic, you've got those five elements, and if you take any one of those elements off of the mousetrap, it won't work. It is irreducibly complex to those five elements. And, and Dr. Michael Behe's research suggests that there is so much about us and the universe that is irreducibly complex that it couldn't have happened by evolution because evolution only develops one thing at a time. Natural selection only picks that which works. So if you get the base of the mousetrap but nothing else, natural selection isn't going to take the base because it's doing nothing. Darwin struggled with the human eye because there are so many pieces and parts to the eye that have to be together at the same time for the eye to function. It is irreducibly 
complex. And what we've also learned in recent days is during Darwin's time, the cell was thought to be so simplistic. But what we know now is that the cell is incredibly complex. We work at a molecular level. There are molecular machines. There are switches inside the shell, cell that are turned off and on. There's all kinds of things that happen. Molecules move stuff from one side of the cell to the other. It is a complex machine, irreducibly complex. That's all. If, if all, all I had to judge was that it would be enough to convince me. But let's just take a look at the incredible creation around us for a minute. You know what an archer fish is? The archer fish lives in Southeast Asia and they have the ability to squirt jets of water at insects on branches and leaves of trees suspended over the water a distance of five feet. I can't spit five feet, can you? <laughs> but the archer fish can. And he can be so accurate with his aim that he'll knock a bug off of a leaf into the water and voila, lunch is served. The archerfish is colored and shaped in such a way that it's hard to even see above the surface of the water. How, how did he learn to do that? How, how did that develop? Or how about the red cockaded woodpecker? This bird has four powerful toes with which to enable clinging to the side of a tree. It sinks those in like chisels. Its primary predator is the rat snake. And so the woodpecker drills small holes beneath its home, which allows the tree resin to seep into the bark, which in turn prevents the snake from being able to climb up the tree. I like this bird already. <laughs> now, the, this particular woodpecker hammers away 500 times per minute. That is eight strikes in a second. I mean, that, you can't even see that. The bird's beak travels at a rate of 13 miles an hour when it hits the tree, which would be the equivalent of us running full tilt, full speed, and just running dead into a tree. <laughs> now, how, how many times would you do that before you'd end up with a concussion or, or something worse? And yet, this woodpecker does this day in and day out, minute in and minute out, 500 times because his head is cushioned with a special type of skull that prevents damage to his brain as he hammers away at the tree. How many birds died in the process of evolving this woodpecker technique? Wham! Oh, well, now we lost another. <laughs> you know, another million years go by until another bird tries the same thing. How long did it take? I, I struggle with the whole concept of migration. The monarch butterfly emerges from its chrysalis in the Great Lakes region, which is where we are. We have the monarch butterfly right here in our own yards, and it will migrate to specific places in Florida and Texas and California and even Mexico, places it has never been before. Traveling up to 80 miles per day, it completes the 2,000-mile cycle in time to escape the cold Midwestern winter and it takes like two generations before the trip happens again. There is no connection whatsoever. How does that happen? The Brazilian green turtle swims more than 1,350 miles across a featureless ocean and locates the tiny Ascension Island, a dot in the middle of the South Atlantic, in order to lay her eggs on the island beaches, 1,350 miles with nothing to guide it. How does that happen? How many of you have a GPS? Let me see your hands. We have a TomTom. What else would I have? <laughs> uh, okay, we got a TomTom. -tom. 
Now, suppose you go to buy a GPS and you go into an electronic store and you ask the clerk, I want to see your GPS as they take you to the shelf and there's a GPS sitting on the shelf and you said, who manufactured it? And, and, and the clerk says, well, we have no idea. It just showed up on our shelf one day. We think it just happened. <laughs> You'd go to another electronic store to buy your GPS. My GPS has let me down a few times. I know about yours, but mine isn't always accurate, but it seems as if the monarch always makes it to where it's headed, and the Brazilian green turtle always makes it to where it's headed as if it has a more perfect GPS planted in its being. How did that accidentally, randomly happen? Remember what Paul wrote in Romans? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, which have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Look around you. The evidence is overwhelming. Now take a look at your hand, the back of your hand. It's covered with skin. As a matter of fact, your whole body is covered with skin. It's the largest organ of the body. There are three major layers to your skin. The outer layer being the epidermis, which by the way, the epidermis has multiple layers in just that layer. The outer skin is roughly the thickness of the plastic wrap we use to seal up our leftover food. Are you ready for this? It is comprised of dead cells tightly attached to one another to resist wear and tear. Nevertheless, we lose up to 40,000 skin cells every minute or about nine pounds of skin annually. Think about how many millions upon millions of skin cells have fallen off just in the sermon. <laughs> kind of makes you want to stand up and brush off your seat a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> but don't panic. New cells are generated at a rate that precisely matches cell losses, keeping the skin just right all the time. It really is God's miracle wrap. And you thought beauty was only skin deep. No wonder the psalmist wrote, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the beginning, God created. Do you believe it or not? So much rests on your answer, you know. Remember, no human was there to witness the beginning. So no matter what you believe about all of this, it ultimately boils down to a reasonable faith. And for my two cents worth, random accidental existence just isn't reasonable. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it takes more faith to believe that some alien race somewhere else in the universe accidentally stumbled onto this planet, seeded life here, and then left to let happen whatever happened. How can that be me any more intellectual than believing in a loving, designing, creative God? And here's my real big problem. Apart from God, I don't know why I'm here. And I have little hope, if any, for the future. Life itself becomes a meaningless black hole if God isn't here. If, if God did not create us, then let's close the doors, go home. We have no need, we have no reason, we have no purpose in being here this morning. But if I'm the product of God's love and design, then I have purpose, then I have meaning, then I have worth in a relationship with Him and with others. The older I grow, I, I, I told you this, the older I grow, the more I become convinced, the more I read, the more I study, the more I learn, the more I become convinced 
that God is my creator. I'll close with this. This isn't scientific in the least, but I can't explain it. Two years ago this month, our granddaughter Addison was born. And I have never experienced a love quite like this before. I know, some of you aren't there yet, and you've heard all these people say that. I heard the same thing, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't describe it for you. I'm almost convinced that the main reason for having kids is so you can have grandkids. <laughs> it, it is indescribable how you feel. Now, there is no logical reason for me to feel this way about my granddaughter. There's no real logical reason that I should feel a concept of love to begin with, let alone for somebody who's two generations removed from me. And yet I can tell you that I've never experienced a love like this before. Without God, none of it makes sense. But with God, when the Bible says God is love, then it all comes together. Because I know that when he created me, he planted in me the capacity to love this little person in a way I didn't think I could. If you love anybody, if you love your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your grandchildren, if you love anybody, that intense love to me is the greatest foundation for the creator himself because there's no logical reason to love anybody. It should just be self preservation. I believe with all my heart that it's true. In the beginning, God created. Do you. And if you've come to that conclusion today, then today's the day you need to accept Jesus Christ while we stand and while we sing.